Reconciliation and providence from Genesis chapter 45. Reconciliation and providence. Whenever we read a book or watch a film or watch a television series or whatever it is, we want, we love, we enjoy those films that have happy endings. We want the crime resolve, the couple falling in love. We want the conflict to end and enemies to kiss and make up. It is for this reason that Genesis chapter 45 is such a a moving chapter. It makes uh, the agony the ups and downs of the last few chapters all worthwhile. And we are, are allowed to, to peer in, to look into the, the reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers after 20, 22 years of separation and estrangement. So this morning we, we come to the glorious account of a, a broken family and the, the marvellous way that God brings reconciliation. And of course, behind all of this, just as I said then, is the providential hand of God. Because you see, God is able to do many things at once, big things and small things. Big things on the macro scale. He's able to run the universe control all things that have to do in our world, that have to do with the redemption of all mankind. On the micro, he has in his heart this little, one little family that is broken, that is split by jealousy, treachery, physically separated for some 20 years. And up to this point in the previous chapters, we know that Joseph has been working his brothers. He has brought them to a place of conviction, compassion, confession. He has been testing them to see whether or not they have truly changed their ways from the way they used to be. And last week in chapters 43 and 44, Joseph had pressed his brothers into an impossible situation by planting a silver artefact in the young brothers, the the precious young brother Benjamin. In In response to this, they are brought back to the palace and some soul searching questions and accusations from, from Joseph are, are directed at the brothers. And Judah steps up as a spokesperson and, and gives a tremendous response that is from the heart. And he showed Joseph that they were indeed different men from the brothers who threw him into a pit who left him for dead and then sold him into slavery for just a few pieces of silver. 
And just as Judah finished his appeal at the end of chapter 44, this is when the governor, Joseph, his chest is, 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 is heaving with emotion. He can't control himself any longer. So that's the build-up to, to this particular point in chapter 45. So first of all, this chapter is divided into two parts from verses 1 to 15 and then 16 to 28. But the first part, let's call it remarkable revelation, verses 1 to 15. And we're going to read the first five verses. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants and he cried out, make everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brother, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers weren't able to answer him because they were were terrified at his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they'd done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And and don't be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. The moment of truth has arrived. The moment of revelation. This is the moment that we've been building up to. And after all the servants are sent out of the room because this is a private moment for the family, for the brothers. He lets himself go. This is the leader. This is the Prime Minister of Egypt. He lets himself go in a torrent of emotion, telling his brothers through his tears, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? Notice how in the same breath that he declares who he is, he inquires about his old man. This is all unscripted. It shows you how much he's missed his dad for the last couple of decades. Think about the brothers, the rush of confusion and horror which swept over them. What's going on? One moment they're standing before the Prime Minister of Egypt who has their lives in his hands. The next moment they're looking into the eyes of the brother they sold as a slave 22 years earlier. What's worse? must have been surreal. Someone back from the dead, left for dead. And after they had everything that they did to him, after everything they'd done to him, their their blood must must have run cold. And and the word translated terrified is used actually to describe the feeling which swept soldiers who, 
who are in battle and they are at one point in the battle, it just gets too much and the enemy turns on them and they are doomed. That's the, the word terrified which is used here. We are done for, basically. Goners. And Joseph's brothers must have thought, this is it. We've had it. Speechless. Do you notice how the first 15 verses of this chapter, they say nothing. And Joseph does all the talking. is like, okay, wasn't expecting that. And then he invites them to come closer and kisses Benjamin, the young one, and then the rest of the brothers weeping on their shoulders. And after weeping, weeping and explaining and, and embracing, his brothers were finally able to talk to him. And although dumbfounded, they were able to talk. And what a conversation it must have been. What is the lesson for us here? A good question for us to consider is how was Joseph able to forgive his brothers? Because what they did was, was pretty bad. It's not just being unfriended on Facebook, which they did. It's not just that they said stuff about him or called him names or being bullies to him. They they were pretty bad. Now, so how was was he able to to forgive his brothers? Because he, in his normal human emotional condition, he had everything in his hands to take life. The most powerful under Pharaoh in Egypt, in the world at the time, he could have wiped them from the face of the earth. If he followed the cycle of violence, remember the brothers Cain and Abel, we know how that finished. They were siblings then again he might have learned something from the, the build-up and, the, and the, the estrangement between his dad, Jacob, and Uncle Esau. The fight that began in the womb. And, and how after many years of separation and all of that, how Esau, Esau actually forgave his father Jacob after all those years. Remember, we looked at those chapters. But I think, I think Joseph actually went further than that. Joseph shows us the key to being reconciled to those who have deeply hurt us, whether they be family members or friends or acquaintances, or whoever it might be, is to see the situation from an eternal perspective. You 
You rise above it. He realised that even though his brothers intended, their intention was to harm him, God was working through even those sinful intentions. Joseph had learnt over the years to discern God's powerful hand behind the events in his life. Four times he stated that God, not his brothers, was behind what had happened. That's in, in, in verse 5, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9. Over and over and over again he's reassuring them that God was behind it. Yes, of course he was hurt, deeply hurt by his brothers. But he also knew that God was behind every disruption in his life. And because of this, he was then able, he was prepared in advance to forgive them. And so from the moment that he first saw his brothers turn up to Egypt begging for food, God was working to restore them and their relationship, not to avenge the wrong that was done to him. So that's one thing. The, looking at the situation from the eternal perspective, but it has also to do with brotherly love. Listen to what Joseph says. He says, I am Joseph, your brother. He looks beyond the sins of the past. He sees them through the eyes of perfect love and perfect forgiveness. He looks at the things that, you know, that, that blood is, is, is thicker than water, the fact that they have something in common, that they have a common father, they, are common, they have a common family that they are still a family. Are we able to see ourselves as being part of a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ? If God is our Father, we are his children. You look at the language that the Apostle Paul uses over and over again in his epistles and it's brothers and sisters and the language continues of a family. That's how, thank God that that's how the Lord sees us. He loves us in spite of our sin, in spite of our fallen condition. He knows what we deserve but he is determined to give us what we do not deserve. Thank God for the grace and the love of Jesus, that he does not treat us as our sins deserve, from Psalm 103, verse 10. So if you and I are going to get past the hurts that we experience, if we are going to get past the victim mentality that is so prevalent today, we have to adopt the same attitude. If some, something takes place in your life or in my life, good or bad, it does so only because God gave it the permission to occur in the first place. Now, I know that we struggle with this. God is sovereign over everything. 
Romans 8.28, and I know that we quote this verse too quickly sometimes, but this is the perfect context in which to use it. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In the original language, all actually means all. Imagine that. There's no exclusion. All things. If he has allowed it, then he will use it for my good and his glory in his name. My duty and your duty is to accept the things that come my way and trust him to work out his will through it. If I can see his hand, not just in the good times, but even in the hurts that I experience, I will definitely make them easier to bear. Do not double the pain that you're going through. But see God's hand. Remarkable God. And now his remarkable provision from verses 16 to 28. Remarkable provision. From verse 16 to 20. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. You are also instructed to tell them, do this. Take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives and get your father and come. And never mind about your belongings because the best of all Egypt will be yours. Now I have already spoken a few times about the heresy of the prosperity gospel that abounds today. Um, the, the prosperity gospel basically means that you name it and claim it, that, that uh, if you're a Christian, then God wants you to be healthy, he wants you to be rich, he wants you to have absolutely everything Everything good is going to happen to you every time. And if that's not happening to you, then you're obviously missing out. You're in sin or it's your fault or whatever it is. That's the... I'm just giving you a mock-up of the prosperity gospel. But, you see, the Bible does talk about prosperity. And whenever there is false teaching, there is a danger that we will overreact by neglecting the true doctrine which has simply been carried to an extreme, which is what the prosperity gospel does. So heresy is basically a, a truth which is taken to an extreme and therefore just distorted than everything else. In Aussie lingo, what we don't want to do is throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't want to neglect, we don't want to neglect the comforting truth that God does provide. Not just the minimum. 
David said in the 23rd Psalm, my cup overflows. Oh, it's enough. No, it's overflowing. It's spilling over. The Apostle Paul expressed that, he said, he says, exceedingly, abundantly, beyond. Exceeding, abundantly, beyond. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's a lot. All, exceeding, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think. So you thought that you would ask God for a lot and he says, no, I'm going to give you more. Ephesians 3.20. Now that is the truth. That's in the Bible. But it has to be put in context of everything that we've been saying already. Now God is going to provide for Jacob and his sons far beyond what they had ever dreamed. Far beyond. Remember last week how Jacob, under, under pressure, the old fellow would have been 130 by now, not a spring chicken, is the, the drought continues. It is long, it is hard. And he reluctantly agreed to send all his sons back to Egypt to, to, get, to buy some more grain because they were going to starve. He hoped that his beloved son Benjamin would return safely and that his son Simeon would be released from prison in Egypt by this stern governor. He hoped that his pistachio nuts would do the trick to find a little happiness, bring a little bit of joy to the governor. That was the limit of his hopes. That's all he hoped for. He would be a happy man if these things had happened. So the old man sent his sons off with a sigh. Remember in chapter 43, verse 14, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. What am I going to do? All my family's gone. Just leave me in my misery. Oh, I'm going to go and cry now. That was, and you can imagine, you understand, this is, this is, this is it. Everything he had, all his descendants, off. Doesn't know if you're going to see him again. How is your hope going? Where, where is your, you know, if you, 1 to 10, right? 1 to 10, let's say. Where's your level of hope? Are you redlining in hope or are you just redlining the other way? Man, man, man. There's no hope at all in anything. Is the glass half empty? Never mind that it's half, but it's empty as well. The other way. Some of us have a predisposition to be more hopeful or more pessimistic and that type of thing. I'm, not, I'm going beyond your normal predisposition or your cultural background. Ukrainians and Slavic people tend to be really pessimistic. Oh, it's going to rain. Oh, it's going to be bad weather again. It's going to rain, man. It's going to, we need rain, okay? No, this is going to be bad. I was preaching at... Uh, this is in 1990. I was preaching at my 
My granddad was a pastor of a church for about 50 years, Ukrainian, in, in Paraguay. This little church in the middle of a rural area. And there's me. I felt quite proud to be able to preach, you know. From Australia, the grandson is, is visiting. I thought I'd be overjoyed and everything else, you know, with granddad. And his house is only like 700 metres from where the church was. Dirt roads, all of that. And all he's doing, and there I am, I'm getting stuck into the message and all of this. There's about a dozen people in the church. And all he's doing is looking outside at the window because there's a storm coming. It's almost like saying, hurry up, we have to get home. Because it's going to rain. Thank you, Granddad. Can we get into the into what God's trying to do here? Move beyond our predisposition. The Bible doesn't account for whether a pessimistic or optimistic or whatever. It just tells us who God is, what he does, what he's willing to do. How is our level of hope? Faith, hope, big words and love, three things remain. Three big things, three big words. How are we doing in that? Weeks have come and weeks have gone as Jacob anxiously await as their kids, their boys have travelled all the way. They're grown men, by the way. Let's just call them boys. Um, they travel 400 kilometres down to Egypt. Day after day, he anxiously awaits for them to return. And one, of, and, and one day, his, one of his grandkids comes running and says, Grandpa, I think they're coming. The old man rises to his feet, takes his staff and hobbles to the dusty road, his vision not all that great. His dad didn't have good vision either. In the distance, he can barely, he barely makes out the cloud of dust. He couldn't see well enough to count how many were in the party. But he can make out that there are carts, there's a herd of donkeys. He can't be them. They didn't leave with any carts or donkeys. And as they come closer, Jacob sees these boys that are finely dressed. And then came this most stunning news of all that Jacob couldn't believe. It was his boys. It was his boys. And more than that, that Joseph is still alive. He's, he's not just alive, he's, he's the ruler of Egypt. It's, it's, it just gives you an example of how, how God graciously provides beyond, beyond any of his expectations or hopes or dreams, beyond all that you and I ever ask for. So let's look at this a little bit closer. God provides. 
God provides. As our loving Heavenly Father, God knows and abundantly provides for all our needs. And let's divide our needs into three areas, materially, emotionally and spiritual. Materially, materially. The sons arrive back in Canaan with all these royal fancy carts loaded with provisions, royal fancy carts that were all hand-carved and all of this. And Yep, it would have looked like, best way to, in today's terms, it would have looked like a fleet of Ferraris delivering the shopping. Okay, that's how it would have looked like. These guys are left in poor shepherd's clothing and now they return in Armani suits. Each brother had at least two change of clothes, which is luxury in those days. Benjamin had five, 300 pieces of silver. Now, we don't have a divine right to prosperity, as some have falsely taught. But neither do we need to feel guilty about the material things that God does give us and provide for us. But remember, whether he gives you the million acres or the waterfront or he gives you the little shack or just a simple roof that you can sleep in, Remember to hold these things lightly. They are God's, not yours. I know that you're, it says your name and surname on the title and everything. They're not yours, okay? They belong to God, not to us. What God has done is he's appointed you as a manager for now. You're not an owner, you're a manager. So make sure that your heart is not set on these things because He can take them back whenever he wants. If you don't believe me, just ask Job. Secondly, God provides emotionally. Let's face it, Jacob was an emotional wreck. And although Moses doesn't tell us, we can fill the gaps about the conversation when the boys return from Egypt with the news. The good news is that your son, who was once dead, is now alive. Bad news is that we lied to you over all this time. So there had to be a moment of confession and healing between Jacob and his once treacherous sons. And and for, for Jacob... Let's be honest, I don't think the whole governor thing mattered too much to him, even though it was part of the, the dream that he had when he was a kid. Remember the, the sheaves and all of that, the stars? What he really, what really got him was the fact that Joseph was alive. I don't care about the power and all that stuff. I just wanted to know that my son was alive. To see his son once more would be his goal before he died. That's chapter Uh, 45 verse 28. That was his goal in life, to see my son. Just as God provided for Jacob's emotional needs, God provides for our 
emotional needs as well. He wants us to be whole. He wants us to experience life in all its fullness. And God provides, thirdly, for our spiritual needs. All that is happening here obviously has tremendous spiritual implications, not just for Jacob, but for all of us, all of humanity. Before we get carried away, there is a dark cloud behind the kindness of Pharaoh in inviting the sons of Israel down to Egypt. This is the beginning of the fulfilment of Genesis 15, where where God has told Abraham some 200 years before that his descendants would become strangers and slaves for 400 years in a land that was not theirs. Until when? Until the iniquity of the Amorite was complete. The joy of Genesis 45 is setting up years of suffering down the track, but they are meaningful years, meaningful in the sense that it is in the context of being strangers in a strange land that Israel will maintain its purity as a race, as a people of God. That will be unmixed with the Canaanites because they could never mix with the Egyptians who themselves had their own desires for pure bloodlines. There was none of this intermarriage type of stuff. They were pure. And so God was allowing that child with his chosen because that's where he was going to preserve them, to shape them, a people of his own possession, a light to the Gentiles. And it will find ultimately its fulfilment years and years down the track in his glorious son, Jesus Christ. God provides. How? God provides in his timing, in his timing. The once happy and prosperous Jacob had been reduced to a shadow of himself, a lonely, grieving, almost destitute old man. Why does God drive us to the edge, to the brink of ourselves? Because it is only when we are at the brink that we recognise our need of him. It is only then that we cry in desperation. Like Jacob, seeing the injustice and blaming others for our predicament is not going to be helpful. Drained of our self-sufficiency, we know that we're doomed unless God breaks through. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the, the Corinthians at a time when he was so burdened with ministry, so many people didn't like him. He says that he despaired of life itself. You can know that Paul was at the end of himself when he said he was despaired of even being alive. Why did God let Paul get so low? And he explains that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says, We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. 
But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's what God does. God abundantly provides for our needs. But he doesn't do it just when we think he should. He does it in his timing. Often often letting us come to the very edge of ourselves so that we learn to trust in him. And finally, God provides through grace. Why do you think, why do you think Pharaoh provided so abundantly for Jacob and his 11 sons? Why was that? It, it, it certainly wasn't because they were wonderful guys, was it? It is, it is possible that Joseph, in a, in a deep and, and meaningful moment, even perhaps shared a little bit of his background and his experience with his family and how treacherous they were. Maybe Joseph shared a little bit about that with a Pharaoh. So, why did Pharaoh treat them with such abundant kindness? Why did Pharaoh do that? You know why? It was because of Joseph. For Joseph's sake. Pharaoh knew and appreciated Joseph. So he poured out these blessings on Joseph's family for his sake, because of him. You know what the application is, right? Ding, ding, ding. God doesn't bless us because we're such wonderful and upright, deserving people. I know that you think I'm wonderful. I'm not. I'm just laying it out there. I know you think I deserve. I don't. You know why? God blesses us, blesses me, blesses you because of his son, Jesus. Full stop. If we are in him, then we've got the ultimate connections in the high places. He has wonderfully blessed us when we haven't been trusting and obeying. Why? Because of our relationship with, in, through, because of Jesus. Not because of you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If Jacob's boys felt good in Pharaoh's Armani suits, we have even more reason to do so, for we are clothed in the righteousness of the Son, not ours. And his suit, his righteousness, I know it appears this is just so overwhelming, but it fits so well. It is perfect. I hope and I pray that he opens your eyes each and every day from the moment you wake up until the moment you lie down that you, 
give him praise and honour. Just as that little boy was, the blind boy was singing and praying that God opened his eyes, the eyes of his heart. That in the circumstances of life, we're able to see God sitting on his throne, glorious, majestic, doing all things so perfectly well, even though we don't fully understand it. It's all of you, God. All of you. May we see him high and lifted up. Why? Because he is majestic. He is who he says he is. And most of all, it's because he loves us. He loves us so much.